When I was about 12 or 13 years old, uh, one evening my parents went out to dinner and I was at the house alone. I don't remember where my brothers were on this particular evening. Uh, What I do remember is that I decided to pass the time by watching television. And what I chose to watch that evening was the Twilight Zone. And so I sat on the sofa and there was some kind of Twilight Zone marathon going on. And I just watched episode after episode. Uh, If you've never seen the Twilight Zone, the original series before, uh, I should tell you it is scary, but it isn't scary in the way that a lot of TV shows or movies try to be scary these days. Instead, the idea behind the Twilight Zone was, what are some things that you could be afraid of that you've never thought about before? All right, some things that maybe uh, you could worry about that haven't ever crossed your mind. And so at the beginning of every episode, you may remember Rod Serling, the narrator and creator of the show, would uh, begin by saying something like this, like he'd start, Bob is a man, an ordinary man, just like you or me who lives an ordinary life in an ordinary neighborhood. But everything Bob holds dear is about to be turned upside down and ripped away from him in a moment of terror and anguish as Bob gets on a plane. And flies into the heart of the twilight zone, right? And then there'd be that music that that was as scary as anything else in the show. And then, then for the next, you know, 30, 45 minutes, they would delve into these fears. What if there's a monster on the wing of an airplane? What if you wake up one morning and nobody can understand what you say and fear after fear? So my parents are gone. I'm in junior high. I'm sitting alone watching the Twilight Zone. I'm facing the TV and behind me is the dark hallway with all the bedrooms in our house. And I begin to get afraid. So I I stopped the television. I got up and I walked through the house and I turned on every single light. And I checked every nook and cranny of the house, the bathrooms, the closets, everywhere. I didn't find anything sinister. So I came and sat down and decided to watch something different. But, but my fears were still churning and I couldn't put them to rest. So I finally did the only thing I could think to do, which was I called my dad. And uh, this was before cell phones, right? So the only way to reach dad was to pick up our landline and call the landline at the restaurant and talk to whoever answered the phone, the hostess or the maitre d' or whoever it was, and ask for my dad. And they had to go find him at the table, bring him to the phone. So you can imagine by the time he gets there, he's between annoyance and fear himself, right? What's going on? Why are you calling? He picks up the phone. Son, what's going on? I said, Dad, I'm afraid. He said, afraid of what? And I thought, man, there's so many things to be afraid of. (laughs) I'm afraid of everything. And then I told him, I said, Dad, I was watching the Twilight Zone. And he goes, wait, stop right there. You were watching what? The Twilight Zone. Why were you watching that while we weren't here, while we were gone? I don't know. I just was. And he said, I can't help you. You have to deal with this yourself. And he hung up the phone (laughs) and he went back to dinner. Right? I've not ever been to counseling for that moment. I probably should. 
But my dad understood that I had brought this upon myself, right? I had stoked the fear and then I had allowed the fear to absolutely dominate my thought processes so that I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't think about anything else except what I was afraid of. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Everybody's afraid of something. Right? Everybody's afraid of something. Every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who says, I'm not afraid of anything. And I got to be honest, I think those people are lying. Or they really lack self-awareness. Because we're all afraid of something. When we're kids, our fears tend to run along concrete lines. Right, so I'm afraid of the dark, I'm afraid of a burglar, whatever it may be. Uh, a few weeks ago on Facebook, I asked some of my friends to share with me, what were you afraid of growing up? What were some of your childhood fears? Here's some of the things that they wrote. One person said, I was scared of Santa Claus. Terrified he would come into our house and rob us while we slept. My little sister and I always slept in the same room on Christmas Eve, so I coped by putting her closer to the door, just in case. (laughs) Another says, I had a bad experience with swimming lessons and had a fear of putting my head under water. Getting baptized was terrifying. (laughs) Another said, my parents made me watch E.T. when I was seven or eight. I would always be terrified E.T. was going to fly by and land in my room and take me home with him. And then the same person kind of, as a side note, said, I'm also terrified of clowns. Clowns came up a lot. A lot of people are afraid of clowns. One person said, I wasn't scared of clowns in general, but I was specifically frightened of Ronald McDonald. (laughs) Another says, I hated loud noises, fireworks, balloons popping, guns, etc. Unfortunately, I never outgrew the fear of balloons. Another says, my dad told me Darth Vader lived in our attic because he thought I would try to climb in there myself. And then my favorite one, I was scared of this creepy doll that my sister got at a garage sale. It was about two or three feet tall and had red hair. And to make it more creepy, my sister cut its hair with her kid scissors and then put black and blue eyeshadow on it with crayon. She knew I hated this doll. And so for fun, she would prop it up against my bed at night with its hands stretched towards my head. She would call my name until I woke up and saw it and then pretend to be asleep. I thought, no wonder you were afraid. That's terrifying. That's awful. Now, when we're kids, those tend to be the types of things we're afraid of, right? But as we grow, what happens? Our fears move from the concrete to the more abstract. So when I'm young, I'm afraid of loud noises. But as I get older, I'm afraid of running out of money. When I'm young, I'm afraid of clowns. When I'm older, I'm afraid of being alone. Because I'm single and I wonder, will I ever find somebody? When I'm younger, maybe I'm afraid of the dark. When I'm older, I'm afraid of getting sick or dying or seeing a loved one get sick and dying. And so we begin to experience fears that are a lot more complex and a lot more difficult to deal with the older that we get. So maybe you're a college student and you're terrified of failing. You say, I'm going to fail my classes and I'm not going to get a job and I'm going to have to move back home and live in the old bedroom with the homecoming mums and the yearbooks 
and hear my parents say to me every day, I told you to study. And if you're a parent, you're more afraid of that than your kids. (laughs) We fear failure. We fear death. We fear sickness. We fear poverty. We fear loss. And our fears pile up and we lie awake at night trying to find some courage in the midst of a sinful and broken world filled with things to be afraid of. And the danger that we face if we allow our fears to dominate us like I did as a kid, the danger that we face is when we are controlled by fear, we're unable to follow Jesus boldly. See, that's really the problem. When I am controlled by my fears, I'm going to be hesitant to obey God when he calls me to step out in faith. Because, for example, if my greatest fear in life is running out of money that I won't have enough, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to construct my world so that I always have enough. Which means I'm not going to take risks to shine the light of Jesus Christ in my workplace because I might lose my job or forfeit that promotion. I'm not going to be generous with my money because I got to hang on to as much as I can. If I'm afraid more than anything of being alone, then I'm likely to make decisions about my relationships that aren't honoring to God. I might even compromise the moral standards of Scripture because more than anything, I just want to be with somebody because I'm so afraid of being alone. And so when we allow fear to control us, it prevents us from trusting God. And God knows that. And the Scripture addresses that issue over and over and over again. I think this is why one of the most often repeated phrases in the word of God is do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus say? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. He says, look, by worrying, you can't even add a single hour to your life. You don't have any control over the things you worry about. Uh, Literally, it is you can't add a cubit to your height. If worrying did any good, I would be nine feet tall. Look at me. I'm not any taller. Scripture says the degree to which we allow fear to dominate our lives is the degree to which we'll be hesitant to follow Jesus Christ. We'll try to construct false forms of safety and courage around ourselves. So the scripture says, don't fear. And of course, the question that we have is, how do I do that? Well, certainly we can't avoid fear by just trying to to muster our courage and say, you know, there's really nothing to be afraid of. Because if we're honest, there is stuff to be afraid of in this world. People die. People get sick. People run out of money. People are alone. People hurt. There is pain. There's stuff to be afraid of. So what do we do? That's where I think Psalm 91 is going to provide for us this morning a framework for how to deal with fear. And what the author of Psalm 91 is going to say is this, that courage does not come from within ourselves by simply saying, I choose to be courageous. But courage comes from sheltering ourselves under the protection of God. 
and constantly coming back to the character of God and the presence of God and the victory of God over every enemy. Because what Psalm 91 is going to say is if we really worship a God who has vanquished every enemy, then when we march into the battles and the fears and the darkness of this world, when we march in, we can trust that God is always there, always in control. And for those who know God, those who trust in his name, there are no ultimate fears that can destroy us, not even death. Because God's greater than everything we fear. The only courage we have in the midst of crisis is found in God himself. Psalm 91 was written by an unnamed author, but probably one of the kings of Israel. And it seems like he was writing it on the eve of battle, right as he was about to go into battle against real enemies with real arrows and swords. And he's wrestling with his fear. And what we're going to see him come back to is the promises God has made to the people of Israel. And if you remember, God had promised the nation of Israel that if they followed him, he would allow them to remain in their land. He'd give them victory over their enemies. And so he says, if God has promised those things to his people, then I'm going to trust him. Even when people are dying left and right. Now you and I We're not the nation of Israel. We don't have those same physical promises. But what we have is the same God. And the reality of the power and presence of that God. Who in Jesus Christ has defeated every enemy we could ever face. And so the message of Psalm 91 will be in the midst of fear. You drive deeply into the presence and the power And the promises of God. And you say, I'll trust him. Even when my fears come true. That's where Psalm 91 is going to take us this morning. Look with me at Psalm 91 starting in verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. My God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. First thing that the psalmist tells us is this. God is our shelter. I love this imagery here. It's not just that God builds a shelter or provides a shelter. It's that God himself is the shelter, right? When you're afraid of something, think about what really stokes your fear. I think for most of us, if we're honest, it is I have nothing between me and whatever it is I'm afraid of. There's nothing between me and financial ruin. There's nothing between me and losing my job. There's nothing between me and sickness or death. So what do we do? Well, we try to build our own little shelters, don't we? Maybe if I stash enough away in my 401k, I'll be safe. Maybe if I eat enough asparagus, I won't have to worry about death, at least for a long time. Now, you won't really live either, but you won't have to worry about death (laughs) for a long time. Maybe if I reach out everywhere I can for closeness to other people, I won't have to worry about aloneness. And there will be a buffer between me and what I fear the most. 
And what Psalm 91 tells us is that the only effective shelter is God himself. Otherwise, the dangers of the world would destroy us if it was not for the shelter of God. Would destroy us not only in this life, but destroy us eternally. I was reminded as I read this passage of when my wife and I were living in Dallas when we were newly married. And one evening we went out to our car to drive to a party. And as we walked out to our car, it began to rain. We got in the car, we began to drive to the party, we got to the end of our block, and that rain turned into hail, little hailstones, on the roof of my 1992 Toyota Tercel. It was like a rolling tin can. By the time we got about a mile away from our apartment, the hail was the size of baseballs. Smack on the top of that car. Over and over. If you've ever been in a little car in a giant hailstorm, it will make you think about mortality. It's a scary, scary ordeal. After the storm was over, I I looked at that car and I could see the giant hailstone dents all over the top and the hood of that car. And I remember thinking, if we had left the house at the wrong moment, where we were not in the apartment and we were not in the car, when those hailstones began to fall, we'd be dead. Because there'd be nothing between us and these rocks from the sky. And I think in the midst of our fears, that's really what unsettles us. I'm all alone, I'm vulnerable, I'm unprotected. Anything can hit me. The psalmist says, for the one who shelters under God, nothing can permanently destroy you. There are four names for God used just in the first two verses of Psalm 91. The first one is Elyon. Elyon means the most high God. And the idea is that God is above and bigger than whatever you might be afraid of. Elyon, the Most High God. The second name for God, it's translated in most translations, the Almighty. It's El Shaddai. El Shaddai is the imagery of God as a giant mountain. Think about a mountain in the midst of a big storm and what you might do is run up to the side of that mountain and shelter yourself under that mountain or next to that mountain so that the storm couldn't get to you. That's El Shaddai. Then thirdly, the Lord or Yahweh. This is the the four-letter name for God that he revealed to the people of Israel when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Probably derives from what God said to Moses, I am who I am. I don't change. When the world shifts and changes around you and underneath you, God doesn't change. He is who he is, Yahweh. And then the fourth one is just God or Elohim, the general name for God. To say this is our God, who is bigger than what we fear, who can shelter us from all we fear, who never changes in the middle of that storm. And then he goes on to describe God as a big bird. I want to be clear, not big bird, a big bird, like a hawk or an eagle. 
You picture one of those big fowl sheltering its chicks under its wing, under the pinions of its wing, to keep it safe from enemies. The bird is a shelter because it cares for its young. He says that's who God is. So that this psalmist returns to the bigness of God, the power of God. And he says, if I'm with him, then nothing really can touch me. Again, that doesn't mean that the things we fear may not come true in this sinful world. But what it means for us as Christians is if we are with God, he is a shelter in the sense that death, even death itself, can't permanently destroy us because we have victory over death in Jesus Christ. Aloneness cannot permanently undo us because there will come a day when we will no longer experience isolation because we are forever in the presence of God. God is with us now. God is with us forever. Poverty and need cannot permanently undo or destroy us because God promises that for those who know him, you will eternally have more than you could ever ask for or need. So the psalmist says, this is my God. And he goes back to the character of God. And then he says, because God is my shelter, then God also is my courage. Because of who he is, this is where I derive courage. Look at verses 5 through 13. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. He goes on to say, in the darkness and in the light, in the middle of battle, I will trust that God will give me courage so I don't have to be afraid. Think about the dark for a minute. Many of us, maybe most of us, at one time or another, me included, have been afraid of the dark. I mean, how many of us have been afraid at some point of the darkness? Most of us. Why are we afraid in the dark? Because the reality is that a lot of bad things happen in the dark. Right? The dark is where uh, most crimes occur. The dark is where we might, we might hurt ourselves. We might stub our toe or crash into something we can't see. There are all kinds of things to be afraid of in the dark. I read a, a study not long ago where uh, some researchers looked at lion attacks in Tanzania over about a 10 or 12 year period. And it wouldn't surprise you to find out most lion attacks happen in the dark when you can't see the lion and they can sneak up on you. Keep that in mind if you're ever sleeping in the open in Tanzania. The 20th century psychologist Freud had this theory about the dark that we're afraid of the dark because when we're babies our parents place us in a crib in a dark room and then they leave us there. 
And so we learn to be afraid of abandonment in the dark. In other words, he says, all we want in the dark is mom. I don't know if he's right, but but I do think this. We're afraid of the dark because everything is unknown. We can't see what's going to happen. And we live that way, don't we? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we walk in the dark of our fears. But the psalmist also says, you know what? It's not just the dark where bad things happen. Just to make you feel better. Bad stuff happens in the day too. The sun could come up and scorch your crops. Wars mostly happen in the daytime because your enemy can see you to kill you. So whether it's day or night, there's, there's stuff to be afraid of. And then he goes on and he talks about the experience of battle and the enemies that he faces. And he says, there are enemies arrayed against God and his people, just as there have always been enemies arrayed against God and his people. In his day, it was the enemies that were the surrounding countries of Israel that wanted to wipe out God's people, motivated by sin and Satan. They wanted to destroy God's chosen people. As God's people, we face very real enemies. Sin and death. And Satan who seeks to destroy. As you read throughout the New Testament, you get a picture of how Satan wants to destroy the people of God. How he's aligned against the people of God. Let me show you a couple of passages. 1 Peter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. How does he seek to devour? Well, Jesus tells us in John chapter 8. The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's what the devil wants to do. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your life, both physically and spiritually. How does he accomplish that? Well, through lies. Lies that say, I can't trust God, therefore I will not trust God. Lies that say, there's nothing separating me from everything I fear. God has led me to a dead end. And I can't trust him. So that as we lie awake in those dark moments of fear, the enemy himself prods us with every lie he can think of to lead us to the path of destruction and death because he hates God and his people. And what the psalmist says is in the midst of those lies, I'll derive my courage from God. That when I walk into the middle of all these enemies, I will remember that I serve a God who is bigger than every enemy, who's bigger than Satan, who's bigger than death, who's bigger than sin. And so even when around me I see death and trial and trouble, I trust that for the one who knows God, he's my shelter and fear cannot destroy us. There's nothing on this earth that can permanently or eternally undo the people of God, even though we live in a world filled with things to fear. 
psalmist goes on here in verses 11 through 13 and he says, you know what, he sends his angels to guard you. And he looks to the protection of God and he says, here's where courage comes from. That I know wherever I am, God is at my side. He never leaves. He never changes. He never shrinks. He's always there. So he says, God is my shelter. God is my courage. In the midst of everything that I fear. All too often we construct false sources of courage, don't we? Think, if I just can stash away enough money, if I can find a good enough diet, if I can make sure my kids understand and obey everything I want them to do, if I can put them in the right schools, if I can get us in the right neighborhood, then I'll derive my courage from those sources. But there is no courage or shelter to be found in the planning and the schemes of this world. Because we don't have any control. Only God does. Some time ago I was talking to a man in my family. He was telling me a story and he said, uh, this was from his life. He said, here's something that I want you to know. He, He had gone for a walk a number of years ago. And while he was on his walk... The phone rang, and his financial advisor was on the other end, and he said, sir, I just want to tell you this. I want to tell you something. You made some really good investments, and they've paid off. Congratulations. You're a wealthy man. Hung up the phone and, you know, walking with a little bit more of a step now, right? Good walk. Fifteen minutes later, phone rings again. He picks it up. It's the doctor. Sir, I need to tell you, the scans came back. You have terminal cancer. He said, I hung up the phone and I realized all of that wealth, all of that planning, it can't shield me from what I'm really afraid of right now, which is I'm going to die. Our false sources of courage will never provide courage in that moment of truth. And so the psalmist says, I derive my courage from the reality of who God is. Because only God can deliver us from death and sin and Satan because in Jesus Christ, he's vanquished every enemy. That's the good news of the gospel. That Jesus walked into a battle with every enemy of God. Satan was arrayed against him. Sin was arrayed against him. Death itself came against him. And here's what happened. They killed him. All of the enemies of God killed God's son. But then he rose again. And every enemy is defeated by the power of God. And all that we're waiting for now is the day when all of those enemies are cast into the lake of fire. Death itself and Satan himself will one day be permanently destroyed because of what Jesus Christ has done. So we walk through the trials and the fears of our life, remembering the reality of God as our courage. And then the psalmist closes with one 
last concept, verses 14 to 16. He says, because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. God is our shelter. God is our courage. Thirdly, God is our salvation. God is the deliverer. Right here in these last three verses, he uses multiple words for salvation. To deliver, to rescue, to save. He says, that's who God is, that in the midst of those enemies, God reaches down and pulls me out of the fire. You might imagine an individual up to their neck in water, surrounded by the enemies of God, and God says, I'm getting you out. I was reminded uh, six or seven years ago, when my son was maybe two and a half or three, my wife, Shannon, and Samuel went to a pool party at a friend's house. And the kids were all playing in the shallow end of the pool. And the moms were sitting there watching the kids in the shallow end of the pool. And it wasn't a big pool, but you know, if you've ever had a toddler, you know they can remove remarkably fast when they want to. And so they're watching the kids and Shannon turned to say something to a friend and she turned back and Samuel was not right there anymore. He had gotten out. And you know how fast a toddler can go. He, he could have been at someone else's house by then. And what had happened was he had hopped out of the pool. He was running around to the other side of the pool to pick something up and he slipped and he fell in the deep end. And she said, as I sat there, I suddenly heard... This little voice, mommy! She looked over just in time to see that little head go back under the water. She said, I didn't know I could move that fast. She jumped in and grabbed him out and set him on the side. And we asked Samuel later, were you scared? He said, yes. But he said, when I called mommy's name and I saw mommy on the way, I knew I didn't need to be afraid anymore. He knew that she would pull him out because he knew who she was and he knew what she could do. It makes me think of an incident very similar to this in the New Testament with the disciple Peter. You may remember when the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm And the waves are crashing and the rain's coming down. And all of a sudden, they see a guy walking on top of the water coming toward them. And in their fear, they think it's it's a ghost. We've entered the realm of the dead. And they're coming to claim us. Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's I. You remember Peter says, "Uh, if it's you... Jesus, tell me to come out to you on the waves. And so Jesus says, come on. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the waves and he's looking at Jesus and he's walking on top of the water. But then what happens? He begins to look at everything he's afraid of, the waves and the wind and the rain and all of this. And he begins to sink. And just like my son did in that moment, right before Peter goes under, he says, Lord, save me. And what does he do? 
He calls on the name of the Lord for salvation and Jesus goes and pulls you up. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And I've always felt kind of bad for Peter in that moment. Because I I just want to go, what are you talking about? Everybody else is still in the dumb boat. (laughs) But here's what Jesus wants him to understand. That in the midst of that chaos, only God can deliver. From death, from Satan, from sin, from whatever it is you're afraid of. Sometime later, in a speech in the book of Acts, that same disciple Peter would say these words, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's very reminiscent of what we see here in Psalm 91. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Why? Because he has known my name. I will call, he will call upon me and I will answer him. To know the name of God, to call upon the name of God, is to say, God, I trust that only you can deliver me from whatever I fear. I don't have to fear being alone because God's promised his presence with those who trust in his name. I don't have to fear sickness and death as painful as they are, as real as they are, as terrible as they are. I don't have to fear because God has accomplished and promised victory in Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist says, God is my shelter, my courage, and my salvation. So what do we do in in those moments of fear? When we feel afraid and, and that fear is beginning to dominate our hearts and our minds, we do what the psalmist did. First, we remember the character of God. God is greater. God never changes. The most high God who shelters us from every enemy. We remember the presence of God. He stays. He never leaves. He's with us even in the dark. I couldn't help but remember from 2 Kings the story of Elisha and his servant surrounded by enemies. And as they're surrounded by these uh, enemies who want to kill Elisha and kill the king of Israel and attack God's people, Elisha's servant says, we're in big trouble. What are we going to do? You remember this, Elisha says, God, open his eyes. He tells them, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And the servant's eyes are open and he sees the the mountains and the trees filled with the armies of God. Because God's presence had never left, even in the face of all these enemies. So we remember God's presence. Third, we remember God's salvation. That the day really is coming when every enemy will be vanquished. For those who know Jesus Christ, if you want eternal courage, And you don't know God in Jesus Christ. The way to know that you don't have to be afraid of death. 
You don't have to be afraid of aloneness. You don't have to be afraid of losing everything. Only way to know that is to say, I I trust in what God has done in Jesus. That with the death and resurrection of Jesus, every enemy is vanquished. Every fear can be cast away. For those who know Jesus Christ, this is the daily reminder for our hearts and minds that God is our courage in the midst of every fear. Three or four years ago, I found myself at a moment in my life where I was just struggling with anxiety a whole lot. In my particular case, my anxiety at that moment was over money. Because here's what happened is we have three kids and as the kids began to grow, they cost more money, right? So when they were real little, they didn't eat a whole lot of food, right? Toddlers don't eat a whole lot. So you take like a chicken nugget, you divide it three ways, you give it to them and you're good. That's dinner. But as they grew, they began to eat more and more and then they needed school supplies and then they needed clothes and they needed all of these things and it was costing more and more and more. And it felt like money was just leaving my bank account like a spigot that someone had turned on. And there wasn't enough flowing into the reservoir on the other end. And it didn't help that some older people kept saying things like, just wait until they're even bigger. (laughs) Just wait is never a helpful thing to say, by the way, to somebody in stress. So I began to fear, God, what's going on? You're not going to provide. We can't do this. How are we going to make this? We're going to run out. There's not enough. And it was right about that time in my Bible reading cycle that I happened to come across Psalm 91. So I began to recite to myself these realities about the character of God. He's still here. I began to remind myself of Jesus' words. You seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Why? Because your heavenly father knows what you need. As long as he has called you to follow him boldly. Which is as long as you're here. He'll provide what you need to do it. And so I reminded myself of who God is, of what God has done in Jesus Christ and began to replace all of those lies of the enemy with the truth of who God is. I still became afraid sometimes. But what what happened is I, I began to recognize that I didn't have to let this fear dominate my heart and my mind because I know who God is because I know what he's done in Jesus Christ. So I can say with confidence, God is my courage. I don't have to be afraid. God is my courage. I don't have to be afraid. Each night, each morning. That's our challenge. When you wake up, when you go to sleep, and every moment in between, when you feel afraid, God is my courage. I don't have to be afraid. He's vanquished every enemy. He's bigger than every enemy. God is my salvation. In Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm that reminds us of who you are. And we pray we would trust you.
Father, we pray that we would always remember your character and your presence and your salvation. And we thank you that because of Jesus, we know we have eternal life and eternal hope so that all those things we fear can't touch us. I pray protect us from the temptation of believing that our own poorly constructed tiny little shelters can save us from anything. Remind us that only you can save. We thank you for your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.